0: Well, hey, good morning, and uh, welcome to Sojourn. My name is Justin, I'm the pastor here at Sojourn Church, and uh, as Daniel said, if this is your first time gathering with us, am uh, just grateful and glad that God brought you to be here this morning. Uh, whether you came by invite of a friend, or you're trying to find a new church, or just checking out who, uh, who this Jesus guy is, we're just grateful to be able to gather with you this morning to sing together, to open up God's Word Uh, this morning. We do preach from the Bible every week here at Sojourn. And so if you need a copy of the scriptures this morning, would you just raise your hand? We'll have a couple of people walk around and pass those out uh, so you can actually read along with us this morning. And know that those are always there for you. We always have Bibles here every week. If you don't own a Bible or you know someone that doesn't own a Bible, feel free to take that with you uh, as a gift and you can pass it along. We want people to have Uh, access to God's Word. Uh, But as we get settled in here, before we open up to Matthew chapter 5 this morning, let me just pray uh, for our time together in God's Word. Father, we come before you this morning, and uh, we may be at a bunch of different places. With this many people in the room, there's bound to be people that are joyful in life right now, joyfully walking with you, feeling close to you right now. And there's also bound to be people that are struggling in their relationship with you. They know you, but they feel that you're distant right now. And then there's bound to be people in this room that don't know you. They're not walking with you. They maybe are just checking out who you are and you're doing something in their life. You brought them here this morning. But no matter where we're at, we come and sit together in this room under your word. And so we pray that as we open your word this morning, that you would do a work in us. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would bring conviction to our lives. What we're going to look at in your word this morning, Father, is challenging. I know it's personally challenging for me, and so I pray on behalf of this gathering of people this morning, no matter where we find ourselves in our spiritual journey, that you, by your Spirit, would do a convicting but also a transformative work in our lives. As we sit in a seat this morning, would you transform our hearts here and now? That doesn't come through something that I say in particular, it comes through the power of the preaching of your word that's a work of your spirit. And so we beg, we plead, Holy Spirit, would you do that today? And that you'd be honored by that, you'd be glorified by that, you'd be exalted by that, and that we could walk out of this place thankful that we've been able to gather together as your people under your word today. And so we submit this time to you, and we pray all this in Christ's name, amen. You know, I think all of us have seen uh, signs in life, we've, we've come across signs that say something along the lines of warning, danger ahead, uh, serious injury or death may occur. And when we see those signs, if we come across those, most likely we turn away from those things, we don't continue to proceed. Uh, if you do proceed, you're likely not here this morning. Um, and so we, we pay attention to signs like that because we know that those signs are meant to point out the reality of the fact that if we continue on a certain path, That it's not going to end well for us. It's not going to go well for us. There's an unfavorable reality that will cause us to change course when a warning like that, a sign like that is given to us. But at the very same time, there's other warnings that are maybe given to us in life that we don't pay so much attention to that might also lead to death. You could go in for your physical, your annual physical, if you go in annually to get a physical. I know some of you maybe don't do that, uh, but your doctor may say, hey, you might want to cut back on eating certain kinds of food because you're predisposed to high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and if you continue to eat a certain way, it might lead to death. You might have heart disease that leads to death, but the reality is for most of us maybe sometimes we hear those things and our coworker brings in duck donuts one more time and we say, I've got to have just one because what's one more donut? Now, this is not a sermon about healthy eating. That's not what this is about. I love duck donuts as much as the next guy. But what we're going to see in the text today is that Jesus is helping us to understand something. He, he's talking about the law of his kingdom. He's talking about the characteristics of his kingdom. We've been in this series over the last few months looking at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And, and Jesus is trying to help us understand the reality of what it looks like to live life under the rulership and the lordship of him as king. The life in His kingdom is upside down to the way the world calls us and tells us to live. And as we get into this text today, we see Jesus is trying to help us to understand the seriousness of the law of His kingdom. And to not to miss the reality of the danger that lies ahead in our lives if our lives and our hearts go unchecked. And in this particular text, Jesus addresses an area and an issue that I would say every single person in this room at some point in time, if not on a regular basis, struggles with, and that's anger. Anger. And as Jesus has done over and over again, He He presses in on our lives, He confronts the way we think, the way we believe, or what we believe, how we live our lives, and He seeks to bring about transformation. This isn't a, a sermon or a, a teaching of Jesus to seek to bring condemnation on your life. But Jesus doesn't pull any punches. He's coming head on and confronting us and pressing on the details of our life in a way that He desires to bring about transformation because we've come close to the King. See, what Jesus says this morning is serious, but because Jesus is the one who says it, it's also hopeful because Jesus is trying to bring about change in our lives. And so my goal today is to help us understand the deadliness of anger But to also see that as his kingdom people, we can live differently and see change take place in our lives in an often unaddressed area in our lives. See, anger, I think, is one of those uh, what we could call acceptable sins, respectable sins. We don't talk much about it. We don't engage with it much in our life because we think, well, I'm not that bad. My anger isn't that important. As we get into the text this morning, we'll see that that's not the case. So, may God bless the preaching of his word this morning. If you have your Bible, go ahead and flip to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be in verse, verses 21 through 26. So, flip to Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. This is what Jesus says to you and to me this morning. Starting in verse 21 You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. To come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Last week we looked at verses 17 through 20, and really we could say these are some of the most important uh, verses in, in all of Scripture because we. Really, uh, Jesus helps us to understand how we should read the Bible and see that He fulfills all of the law and the prophets. And He also is teaching us and helping us to understand the rest of what He's going to teach on the kingdom of God. And Jesus says two things in those verses that I want to remind us of as we look at this text this morning. In verse 17, He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Then in verse 20, he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness, your right living, exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What we saw last week as we looked at these words of Jesus is that the hope of verse 17 gives us the ability to live out the call of radical righteousness that Jesus gives us in verse 20. And so we see through the rest of this text, especially in chapter 5, Jesus develops a pattern as he's teaching. And he'll say things like, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. See, Jesus isn't seeking to overturn the law. He's not seeking to jettison the law or get rid of the law. No, he's establishing the true intent of the law of God as God designed it to be. He's taking the interpretation of the experts of the law, these scribes and Pharisees, and he's taking them and he's flipping them on their head and he's driving them deep into our hearts saying, this isn't about outward conformity. It isn't about checking boxes off in your life. This goes much to a much deeper level of the reality of your heart, often in a place where people do not see, it's not exposed to everyone around you. Jesus is pointing out the reality that it's out of the heart flows, that your life flows. The reason you do certain things, think certain things, interact in certain ways with people all flows out of the reality of your heart. And so everything Jesus says presses on that. And what we're going to see is that in the following chapter, in the rest of chapter 5, in this sermon, this teaching on the kingdom of God, is that Jesus is giving uh, just kind of illustrations. It's not exhaustive, but illustrations of what the reality of life looks like as we seek to follow Him. Of what a righteous life looks like that comes through a changed heart. In a desperate need for the one who fulfills the law. And so, something we'll see in each of these examples that's interesting that I think we can look at and see today, but we should see throughout the rest of chapter five, is that these are relational in nature. Everything Jesus talks about through the rest of chapter five is relational in nature. It's our our interactions with other people. And so, one principle we can see right away from this is that relationships are difficult. Now, I don't need to tell you that this morning. That shouldn't be new information to you. I'm sure right now, immediately saying that, you can think of a relationship in your life right now that's difficult. Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's with a friend. Maybe it's a coworker or a neighbor. There's just the reality of life right now and the world we find ourselves in that's fallen and broken is that relationships are difficult. But at the very same time, as God's kingdom people, we can do relationships differently because the King has come. So today, as we look at verses 21 through 26 specifically, I just want to break this down into two points. So if you're taking notes, you can write these down. The first point is relationships wrecked, and the second point will be relationships restored. Relationships wrecked and relationships restored. So looking at verse 21 and 22, we see this picture of relationships that are wrecked. Now, something that God's law makes clear and that really makes sense to us, whether we know Christ or don't know Christ, is that murder is wrong. Killing someone, taking someone's life should be punished. It should receive judgment. We can go out into the streets and ask anyone on the street, whether they're following Christ or not, do you think murder is wrong? And everyone's going to say yes. God's created that within us to see that as being a bad thing. And so God's law continues to uphold that truth. He's established valuing life. There's nothing different in the kingdom of God about that. God's kingdom people value life. And so the teachers of the law, though, the experts in the law would read something like that. And in an effort to keep the law, remember, they're, they're all about outward conformity. They're all about outward obedience, checking boxes off, thinking that by doing, they gained from God. But as we saw last week, we don't gain by doing, we gain by abiding, But these experts of the law said, okay, great, I see this. As long as I don't kill anyone, I'm good to go. Box checked. Let's move on. But Jesus slows us down a bit here and says, no, here's what I have to say about that. Jesus is speaking with authority here. This would have been scandalous for Jesus' listeners, for his hearers to to hear him say, you've heard it said, but I say to you, See, the, the law of God was upheld. it was valued by God's people. It was authoritative because it was from God. So for Jesus now to say, "But I say to you," he's not quoting anyone else, he's speaking with authority. He is the king of the kingdom, and in the kingdom has come, and the king has come, and he's speaking about the ethics and the ways of his kingdom. So what does he say? He says look you've heard it said not to kill people that murder is liable to judgment but I say to you if you have anger in your hearts towards your brother you are liable to judgment if you insult someone you are liable to the council which is another way of saying you're liable to judgment if you call someone a fool you're liable to the hell of fire another way of saying you're liable to judgment this is intense Jesus isn't giving varying degrees of anger with increasing degrees of punishment. He's just giving different examples of how anger manifests itself in our lives. Anger within our hearts and anger that often spews out of our mouths. Now, you may be thinking this morning, man, insulting someone or, or calling someone a fool, that deserves hell? I mean, that's, that seems pretty intense, Jesus. Like, that's really difficult to see that, that, that's the, that that's what we deserve if we insult someone or call them a fool. let's dive into this a bit more what is the anger that Jesus is talking about this isn't anger over sin it's not anger over injustice Jesus became angry over those things it isn't pointing out foolishness or warning those who are foolish Jesus called the Pharisees fools and addressed their foolishness this is anger in your heart towards your brother that essentially desires harm for, for harm to come upon them to come upon someone else. It's, it's animosity towards someone. It's, it's hatred. It's loathing someone. It's ill will towards someone. Despising someone. Having hostility in your heart towards someone else. And so then insulting someone is using abusive language to attack who they are as a person. It's seeking to belittle someone, to tear them down, to use your words to sen- essentially dismantle a person. Calling someone a fool is slightly different, but it's rooted in the same kind of attacking of someone. It's essentially character assassination. Seeking to attack someone's character by calling them a fool publicly, standing up. So, I mean, in front of a group of people, it's, it's, it's tied in with malice and gossip and ridicule and slander. All those things are closely connected and tied together. So something we have to understand then is that anger that's rooted, this is not anger Jesus is talking about that's rooted in injustice, it's anger that's rooted in being offended. See, the reality is the root of our rebellion against God is that you and I desire to establish our own kingdoms. We desire to establish the kingdom of self. We believe that we are self-sovereigns, that we sit on a throne to rule over our lives and our domains. What this does is it puts enmity between us and God. We're we're in conflict with holy God. He is the only rightful king to sit on the throne. And that's what sin is, and that's what sin does. It jacks up relationships, it brings about brokenness in relationships, primarily with God. But it also jacks up relationships with one another. And so when someone violates our personal kingdom rules and laws, we become angry. We want justice for our perceived injustices, but what we're often doing is confusing personal injustice with injustice against God. God, who alone can establish what is good and wrong and evil and right. So Jesus is not talking about anger over racism or sex trafficking. This is anger because someone caused you discomfort. This is anger because someone said something you don't like, or did something you don't like, or believed something that you don't like. It's anger over someone literally or figuratively stepping on your toes. Anger often arises when we have unmet expectations. Unmet expectations often a result of unvoiced expectations. We have these expectations in our life, but we never actually communicate it to anyone, and when they violate those expectations, we become angry with them. Anger often arises over unreasonable expectations. Expecting someone to to provide something or do something for you that's just completely unreasonable for them to be able to do. You're impossible to consistently meet. So when that happens, we become angry. Anger can often arise when we turn our preferences in life into laws. Thinking, I prefer certain things, I prefer things to be done in a certain way. And so when someone violates those things, I become angry with them. They've caused discomfort in my life. And so often what we're concerned with is not what's actually right and wrong. We're not concerned with actually loving that other person. What we're most concerned with is defending ourselves and our rights. And I think a lot of us, if we're honest, we see anger as personal in nature and essentially harmless. It doesn't really affect anyone. It's not that big of a deal. I can see how it affects my life, maybe, but it's just a personal issue. I don't care much about it. I don't think much about it. I don't seek to address it. But we need to ask the question, what actually happens to you? and happens in relationships when you are angry. As I said earlier, sin jacks up relationships. It jacks up our relationship with God and with other people. It, it wreaks havoc on relationships. Wherever sin is present, relational difficulty will follow. And so when anger is present, relationships are wrecked. But I think a lot of times we can think of anger in our life as if I, if I went to my house or went to my neighbor's house and I just picked up a small pebble and I just kind of threw it at the house. Maybe throw it at the window or throw it at the siding. It might make a little noise. Maybe it's noticed, maybe it's not noticed, but it doesn't really cause a whole lot of damage. And we can think of anger that way. It doesn't really affect anyone. It's not that big of a deal. Maybe I just want just to make a little bit of a, a noise, let them know I'm here. But the reality for anger is it's much more like a wrecking ball. It's cranking up that wrecking ball and slamming it through that house and it tears it apart. It obliterates in your life. Anger obliterates trust. It obliterates love and care and grace and mercy and bearing with one another. Anger brings about massive destruction. Anger is deadly. It's deadly for the person you're angry with. It causes you not to like them. It causes you not to want to be around them. You don't desire their best when you're angry. And it causes you to speak death instead of life, either to them or about them. See, I think gossiping and slandering in anger is just as bad, if not worse, because now you bring other people into your anger. When anger is talked a lot about in the Bible, God takes it seriously. In the book of Proverbs, the author of Proverbs brings this up multiple times. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 22 says, a man of wrath or a man of anger stirs up strife. And one given to anger causes much transgression. He's saying if you have anger, you stir up relational strife. It causes more relational difficulty. And it increases sin. It causes much transgression. When you're angry, it causes there to be kind of collateral damage of more sin going on. Either in you or in someone else. Proverbs 15, 18 says that a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Someone who's hot-tempered is easily angered, who who can just go off really quickly and get ramped up really fast, stirs up strife, creates relational difficulty. The opposite of that is those who are slow to anger, they quiet contention. They remove contentiousness in relationships. See, the reality is, anger is not just deadly and damaging to the person you're angry with, it's also deadly and damaging for you. As one pastor puts it, despising someone imperils your soul. See, when you're wronged or you feel wrong and you don't deal with it, anger is present and a a small plant forms in your heart. And the Scripture calls that a root of bitterness. A root of bitterness takes root in your heart and it starts off small, Seems rather manageable for you, but if you don't continue to deal with it, if you continue not to deal with it, and you continue to feed that animosity and feed that anger within you, that root of bitterness turns into an oak of anger and animosity, and it will destroy you. It will destroy you because your heart isn't meant to house that. It's not meant to house that kind of growth. See, anger in all forms is damaging and deadly, and unchecked anger is especially dangerous because oftentimes it's subtle. And we don't pay much attention to it. And in its subtlety, it creeps and it crawls and it expands and it infiltrates. It's like having termites in your house. Termites can get into your house and chew up the wood in your house and be just eating the structure of your house and you don't even know it. You you can't see them. They're they're quiet killers in your house. But if you don't do anything about it over over time, the structure of your house will be so weakened that your house could literally fall apart. The same thing's true for anger in your life. If it goes unchecked, it's like termites infecting and infiltrating your home, the structure of your life, and it, it will weaken that structure in your life and break you down. It will destroy you. We know that sin jacks up relationships, but sin also jacks up our humanity. See, when God created you and me, He created us to be in perfect relationship with Him, in perfect relationship with one another. But sin has come into the world as we've rebelled against God. As Adam and Eve rebelled against God, it broke their relationship with Him, but it also broke their relationship with one another. And so anger now is a fallen human trait. And when anger is present, what it does is it dehumanizes us and it dehumanizes the person we're angry with. As another scholar says, every time you decide to let your anger smolder on inside you, you are becoming a little less than fully human. When you let that anger reside in your heart, and just smoldering, maybe just a low grade anger, it just makes you a little less than fully human. See, anger is deadly to the other person, it's deadly to you, and it's dishonoring to God who made you both. And this gets to the root of why Jesus takes this so seriously, why he's pressing so deeply on this when he's talking to his kingdom people. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I've quoted multiple times throughout this series, talks about this and is is kind of writing on discipleship. And this is what he says. This is so challenging to us. He says this, anyone who is angry toward a sister or brother, who aims harsh words at them, who scorns or slanders another in public, has as a murderer no place before God knowingly or unknowingly seeking the destruction or humiliation of another person, even just in your heart, is tantamount to murder, Jesus says. And simply put, all forms of anger deserve hell. Eternal, eternal punishment, eternal separation from communion with God and His people, because Jesus equates it with murder. you thinking, man, that still seems so intense. Why does He connect those two things together? The reason Jesus connects these two things together is because this is about something sacred. When we have anger in our heart towards other people, it's an attack on the very image of God, the image of God that every single human being, regardless of age or gender or ethnicity or political persuasion, bears. See, actual murder doesn't just happen. It comes from a heart that's been ransacked by bitterness, ransacked by anger, And so while most people will not actually kill someone, the anger that resides in our hearts is still offensive to God because it maligns the very image of God and the person we're angry with. So Jesus is saying murder is bad, but the root of murder is anger, and all of us struggle with that. All of us are prone to anger because all of us are offended in our personal kingdoms. When, when where we desire comfort, we desire ease, we desire to do as we please, that we are upset when someone gets in the way of that. So we have anger towards them. See, it's not just the extreme situations. It's everyday relationships where this pops up. Maybe you know that right now. You can think of that person right now or people right now you feel angry towards. Maybe it's your roommate. They continue to leave their laundry in places you don't want them to, not clean up the dishes violating your kingdom principles of your own kingdom, so you have anger towards them. Maybe it's a coworker who's slandered you or talked badly about you or done something that's made you upset. Maybe it's your next-door neighbor. Maybe it's just people in your church community, in your community group, people that are a part of this church or have been a part of this church that you feel angry towards. Maybe it's the guy in the car in front of you who you don't even know, but he's driving too slow or he's cut you off feel angry. It just rises up within you, anger towards that that person. Maybe it's in your marriage right now, between husbands and wives. You feel anger and animosity towards someone. They haven't met your expectations, aren't living the way that you would have them live as your husband or your wife. I know for me, one of the places that I see anger most in my life is with my kids. So parents and kids, you can feel angry. This little person in your life that God's blessed you with can just bring out this rage within you. I see that with my kids because they they create things in my life that are uncomfortable. They don't allow me to live the way I want to live. They're not doing things the way I want them to do them. And I find myself getting irritated with them, infuriated with them, anger just rising up within me over these little people. They're not innocent, they're sinners. (laughs) But I can get so angry with them over that. How dare you not listen to me? How dare you not allow me to be comfortable in my life? There's other people in my life right now. As I'm looking at this text, I feel and been processing with the Lord just anger towards other people in my life. And I'm wrestling with that. It's difficult. I struggle with it, and I'm, I'm trying to pray through that and just confused even. Lord, what do you want me to do with this? I, I want to repent of that anger, but I feel hurt. So I have anger with that. And that just, it just shows the difficulty of this. This isn't such an easy thing to kind of quantify and put in a box and deal with. It affects us to the depths of who we are. It causes us not to sleep well at night. It causes us not to interact well with other people. It can even put difficulty in our relationship with the Lord when somebody else has done something to hurt us. We have this anger. This is a quick sidestep on that. And if you're dealing with anger towards others, know too that God is a safe place in person for you to process your emotions with. God knows your heart. See, that's oftentimes, I think we approach God and think we have to kind of come and be like, okay, God, like I, let me confess all my sin. Let me do all these things with you. And we don't just come to be honest, like, Lord, I am angry. I'm angry at this person. So God, help me figure out what I need to do with that. You see, David and the psalm, other psalmists do that in the psalms, processing their emotions with the Lord. That doesn't mean that God doesn't lead you to repentance in that, but we need to come honestly before the Lord with our emotions. But the reality is, this is difficult. But the truth of it, this is, is that person that you're angry with didn't put that anger there. They don't cause you to be angry. See, that already, re- that already lies deep within your heart. They might poke at it. They might provoke it. But it's already there deep, within, deep inside of you. And in an instant, that anger can rise up. It can rise up within our hearts. It can rise up in our minds or out of our mouths. And we can spew hateful or unloving things. See, perhaps the... The most deadly thing about anger is that in most cases, when it's expressed outwardly, it's not through our hands, but through our mouths. In James chapter 3, James deals with this, talking about the tongue, talking about our speech, talking about our mouths. He says this, the tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. That's what's most challenging and most convicting to me. I don't, when I act out in anger, it's oftentimes, probably almost every time, not in anything physical with my hands or my body, but it's often with my mouth. They might be talking angrily towards someone or talking in anger about someone to someone else. We can ask ourselves that question, do my words bring life or death to other people? But sojourn, simply put, what we can see from what Jesus is saying here is that contempt and hostility towards others in any way, any shape, any form, not just physical murder, is not to mark the lives of God's kingdom people. It wrecks relationships. So what do God's kingdom people do with that? Well, they pursue reconciliation. Which leads us to our second point, relationships restored. In verses 23 and 26, A few weeks ago, we saw that Jesus calls His kingdom people to be peacemakers. We saw this in verse 9. He calls His kingdom people to be marked by making peace with other people. But you and I can't be peacemakers if anger resides in our hearts. In this now and not yet reality of the kingdom of God, we still wrestle with and deal with sin in our own lives and in the lives of other people and its effects. And so the reality is you will be angry and you will be offended and you will make others angry and you will offend others. And so Jesus gives two examples of seeking to see relationships restored. One is at a worship service and the other is on the way to court. Let me just read these texts again, these verses again, just to make sure we get what Jesus is saying here. Verse 23 and 24, Jesus says this, he's talked about this anger, and then he says, So, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Jesus is talking about temple sacrifice the temple sacrificial system is still in place at this point. So, Jesus is saying, I mean, you've got to see the extreme nature of this. Jesus is like, if you're bringing your live animal to the altar and it comes to mind that you've done something to offend someone else, leave the animal there and walk away and go find that person and seek to be reconciled with them. Now, the sacrificial system doesn't still exist. Praise God for that. Jesus has gone to the cross to bear the weight of our sin. And so sometimes people take this and they connect it to communion. They say, you shouldn't come and take communion then if this hasn't happened in your life. And that might be what Jesus is talking about, but that's not the main point of what he's talking about. He leads us to our second example. We'll come back to Jesus' main point. Our second example, Jesus says, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you'll be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penalty. So we have this picture again. You're you're literally walking to court. Maybe you've offended your neighbor in some way. And at this point in time, maybe you've done something and it's, it's killed one of his livestock. Or you've done something to encroach upon his land. And so he's taking you to court. He's suing you over that. He's angry with you over that. He's saying, while you're literally walking to court with your accuser, try and be reconciled with him. Seek to make things right with that person. Seek to be reconciled to them. See, we have to notice here in both cases something that's interesting about this text. In the first part of what we looked at, Jesus is talking to the one who's angry, but do you see here Jesus flips it? He's not talking about the person who's angry, he's talking about the one who's made the person angry, the one who's caused offense. But at the end of the day, both of these examples are exaggerated and extreme to make a point, and the point is the same, and it's this. God's kingdom people need to see the urgency of seeking reconciliation or restitution because judgment is coming. But they need to see the urgency of it and pursue it. And so, for instance, if you're at a worship service and you know you've wronged someone, and you have no unwillingness to actually be reconciled to them, to build, rebuild that relationship, or restore that relationship, then it's a serious issue. Jesus is calling us to always attempt to make things right and see that as primary, even over other spiritual things. It's more important to repair a broken relationship than it is to perform a religious duty or argue a case in court. There has to be an urgency in God's people to pursue these kinds of things. So we have to understand sin has destroyed humanity. And anger is a result of that. Galatians 5.20 says that anger is a deed and desire of the flesh. But the good news for you and me today is that the gospel restores our humanity. See, Jesus went to the cross for your anger. Jesus went to the cross and he took on that anger that you have. And he he even took on anger from other people as they yelled at him and spit on him and beat him. He did all that so that you could be forgiven, you could be set free, so that you wouldn't be captive to your anger. The cross and the empty tomb are both the means and the testimony to the power of reconciling and restorative grace. Because when we look to the cross and we think about the good news of Jesus, we need to be reminded and remember the fact that we were once enemies of God, but he pursued us and he sought to restore that relationship with him. And so if you know Christ this morning, Jesus is now restoring the image of God in you so that you might treat other image bearers with the same grace and the same mercy and the same kindness and the same love and the same patience and the same long suffering and the same forgiveness that you've received. If you know Christ, Jesus is restoring your humanity. And so now you can overcome the deeds of the flesh with the fruits of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit's at work within you if you know Christ. And so that means that the Holy Spirit is working to bear out the fruits of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. See, King Jesus has come and his kingdom has come. And it's an act of bringing about our true humanity. And so if you know Christ, you can walk in that reality. Because you've come close to the King. It's what Paul calls us to in Colossians chapter 3. I want to read a bigger chunk of scripture here in Colossians chapter 3 because Paul's just painting this picture of the reality of your life if you know Christ and how anger no longer can be or should be a part of that and how Jesus removes that from you because of what he's done for you. So just listen for a minute. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14, Paul says this If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, is who are your, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Jesus is saying this is what's true about you if you know Christ. As Jesus died and was raised, if you know Christ and you've been united to him in that, Your old life is gone. New life has come. You've been raised to new life with him. So seek him. Fix your gaze on him. Let your eyes and your heart be set on Jesus. And then he says this. Put to death, therefore, in light of that truth about who you are, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And then he says this. In these you too once walked. When you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, all of them away. And he says, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. He says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This is what the gospel makes possible because you're united to the King. Anger does not have to mark your life anymore. You're able to walk in the newness of life because Christ has been raised. So set your gaze on Jesus. Pursue reconciliation with those around you and walk in the ways of your king. See, anger is a fallen human trait, but Jesus is a restoring king. And he's painting a picture of what it means to be fully, genuinely, and gloriously human. And so overcoming anger is a part of this new reality of life in the kingdom of God instead of the kingdom of self. And so we have to to recognize the seriousness of anger this morning. We have to recognize how dangerous and deadly it it actually is, but at the very same time, recognize the ridiculousness of the grace we've received that allows us to be pursuers of reconciliation, whether we're the offended one or the offender. We don't overcome anger, and we'll see this, the same thing is true for lust. Jesus is going to talk about, as we get to another text here soon, but we don't overcome anger by self-will. The goal for you today is not to go, okay, I'm not going to be an angry person anymore. To pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. That's not what happens. Anger is overcome when you place yourself, anger is transformed in your life when you place yourself in a community that's committed to and is marked by faithfulness and freedom in Christ having people around you to tell you, brother, sister, you're not an angry person. That's not who you are. You've been made new in Christ. Be who you are in Jesus. Let go of the anger and allow God to transform your heart that you would have kindness and compassion and long-suffering and peace and joy again and grace and mercy and forgiveness towards others. That's who you are. That's who Jesus is making you. See, we can never forget that becoming and being a pursuer of reconciliation must be connected to Jesus. There's hope in what Jesus is saying to us this morning. This is possible because the King has come and His kingdom is coming. And so we're called to avoid anger and believe that we can be freed from it. All of this is a foretaste of the reality of the kingdom of God coming into the fullness of time. When the new heavens and the new earth, new earth exist, there will be no more anger. There will be no more broken relationships. So Jesus is calling us to walk in that now. Let me, as we close, let me just give you a caveat, though. Because the reality is, relationships are complex, so that means reconciliation oftentimes is complex. Something we have to understand here, though, is a couple of different things that I just want to point out, just to kind of color this in a little bit, because I don't want us just to think this is simple all the time. Sometimes reconciliation is straightforward. Sometimes it is Simple. Oftentimes with my kids, reconciliation can happen quickly. When I'm angry at them or they have done something wrong, we can reconcile quickly. But oftentimes in relationships, reconciliation is complex. Because the reality is both people or parties have contributed to the breakdown of the relationship. And so unless both people or parties are willing to come to the table in a spirit of repentance, true reconciliation won't happen. It won't happen. This is often the case in marriages, When there's a brokenness in the marriage relationship, unless both people are willing to come to the table admitting that they've contributed to the problem or seeking to walk in repentance with one another, true reconciliation isn't going to happen. There has to be a commitment to both people walking in that. Now at the same time as God's kingdom people, to be pursuers of reconciliation means we need to go to someone even in instances that we might not have actually done something wrong or meant to do something wrong. So oftentimes we can hurt someone, but we didn't intend to hurt them, but we still hurt them. So we can't look at someone and say, hey, I'm sorry you feel hurt. I just did, I just did the right thing here. Sorry, sorry you feel hurt that, you, that I did something to make you feel upset, but I'm just, I'm just doing what I need to do. I didn't do anything wrong. That's not what God's kingdom people do. They are pursuers of reconciliation, even if what they've done to offend another person was an unintentional. But at the very same time, we have to just recognize the complexity of reconciliation and not allow people to hold us hostage over that either. Reconciliation comes about in steps. It's it's a commitment to movement in that direction that oftentimes can't be resolved by simply sending a text message, an email, or having a one-time conversation. It's not cheap. It's not easy. But it's worth being committed to. And again, the spirit of what Jesus is calling His kingdom people to is a commitment to the necessity of His kingdom people to pursue reconciliation. Now, two additional things that, that another pastor pointed out that I think are helpful for this, just to help us to understand this. He says we are, we're only responsible for what others hold against us when it's, actu- when it's owing to actual or real sin or blundering on our part. So we need to be careful with that. We can go to someone if we've hurt them, And say, I didn't mean to hurt you. Well, forgive me for hurting you. That wasn't my intention. And it should be over at that point. So we need to pursue them in that. But we're we're responsible for our actual sin towards someone. So we need to be willing and asking someone if we've actually sinned against them. And he also says this. We are responsible to pursue reconciliation. But live with the pain if it doesn't succeed. In other words, we're not responsible to make reconciliation happen. And so if you've asked someone for forgiveness... And they've either given, given it to you but still hold something against you or they're unwilling to give it to you. You've done what you can do to be at peace with all men. You are not responsible for someone else's bitterness. You're not responsible for that. What you're responsible for is pursuing that reconciliation and being willing to lay down your rights to love someone else. God has to deal with the other person's heart so you can pray for them and be patient with them. At the very same time, connected to this, we need to be wary of emotional blackmail. This is often a problem within the church. One pastor points this out in a helpful way, so I'll just read what he says. He says, emotional blackmail happens when a person equates his or her emotional pain with another person's failure to love. They aren't the same. A person may love well, and the beloved still feel hurt, And use the hurt to blackmail the lover into admitting guilt he or she does not have. Emotional blackmail says, if I feel hurt by you, you are guilty. There's no defense. The hurt person has become God. His emotion has become judge and jury. Truth does not matter. All that matters is the sovereign suffering of the aggrieved. It's above question. This emotional device is a great evil. So we need to be aware of that, and what that makes us desperate for is desperate for the help of the Spirit, desperate for wise counsel and community, and desperate for grace. Relationships are difficult, and they're messy, but as God's kingdom people, let's not be marked by anger, but instead be marked by pursuing and restoring relationships when they start to break down. See, reconciliation is not something that happens to us. It's something we're called to pursue, and oftentimes it's a process. So as God's people, let's be quick to pursue and quick to forgive, remembering that God pursued and lavishly forgave us. And as we pursue it, we have to trust the Lord. And Jesus gives us hope here. We need to remember that this is the voice of our King who lived for us and died for us and rose again for us. He gives us the hope of the gospel and the hope of future glorification again where there will be no more anger and no more broken relationships. you Sojourn, there's a real ordinariness to all of this. There's a real ordinariness to life because all of us interact with one another and interact with people in our life every day. And the reality is, in the now and the not yet of the place we find ourselves in, we need to be praying and asking for God to give us restorative grace, asking for patience with other people. And this becomes just a part of our lifestyle because we will sin against one another. We will offend other people and we will be sinned against and we will be offended. So we wanted Jesus to make this a part of our lifestyle where we are quick to pursue Kindness and peace and patience with others, not jump to anger. So let me ask you simply this morning this question: where in your life right now, and who in your life right now, do you need to seek and pursue reconciliation and to restore a relationship with? Maybe it's somebody in this room this morning. Maybe it's your husband or your wife. Maybe it's your girlfriend or your boyfriend or a friend or a family member or someone else, someone you know right now. Man, God's putting that person on my heart right now. I need to go and pursue reconciliation with them. And if you need help with that, go to the Spirit first and ask for it and go to someone in community to ask for counsel. If you remember this week that someone has something against you because you've wronged them, then as much as it depends on you, try to be reconciled. Humble humble yourself and reach out reach out to them. Sojourn, let's strive to be a community not marked by anger or animosity or bitterness or division or dissension or disunity in our homes or in our church family, but instead by God's grace and the transforming power of our resurrected King, let's be a community that's marked by reconciliation and peace and patience and kindness and love and unity. Simply put, let's be a community that's only explainable because of the gospel. As we get ready to come to the table this morning, I want to invite you and encourage you to respond to the message today. If you're a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you to confess to the Lord any anger or bitterness or animosity you have in your life right now before you take the elements, before you eat the bread and drink the cup. And maybe you know there's someone in this room right now that you need to be reconciled with. Would you go to them before you come forward? Say, brother, I've been angry at you. I've been been hurt by you but i i extend grace and mercy to you as i've been given it maybe you are offended by something or you know that someone you've sinned against someone go to them and ask for forgiveness go do that this morning then come to the table together you can celebrate in the grace of god this morning if you're not a follower of christ i want to invite you to do the same thing to confess any anger or bitterness or animosity you have as well but the reality for you is that if you don't know christ you're in bondage to that It will crush you. It is death to you. But Jesus offers you freedom from it. He's the only one that can bring freedom in your life because he's the only one that can bring new life to you and change your heart. And so if you're not a follower of Christ, I don't want you to come forward to eat and drink the cup this morning. I want to invite and encourage you to respond to Jesus' grace, believing that he went to the cross to die for your anger and that he rose to new life so that you can have a transformed life and change your heart this table that we come to this morning is a reminder and a picture of reconciling grace that while you and I were yet sinners enemies of God Christ died for us his body broken for us his blood shed for us and so when we eat and drink this meal as we see everyone around us eating and drinking this meal we proclaim that a relationship that seemed the most impossible to remedy can and was restored so for those of you that are Christians, that are followers of Christ, I hope this encourages your heart this morning and compels you to become a pursuer. And for those of you that are not Christians, that are not followers of pr- Christ, please don't come forward and eat and drink this morning, but may this preach to you as you watch other people around you eating and drinking. May it preach to you again and call you to follow Jesus today. And those of you that will come forward, you can come to the front or head to the back. There's tables in both places and you can tear off a piece of bread and take a a small cup to drink. And what Jesus has done for you, what he did to restore your relationship with holy God, what he did for you to do that will be spoken over you this morning. May that encourage your hearts today as we continue to worship together. Let's pray. Father, I just come before you and just ask very simply, Lord, that you would help us. Would you help us We need your help to not be marked by anger. We need your help to be marked by humility and patience and grace and kindness and love towards others. Would you help us this morning? Father, would you repair broken relationships in our lives? Whether they're broken relationships in this church family, whether they're broken relationships in our home or or our extended family or our community around us or in school or wherever it happens to be, Lord, would you repair those broken relationships? Help us, Lord. We're desperate for your grace and your empowerment. To not have anger within our hearts, which is liable to your judgment, Father, but to be transformed in our hearts. Lord, make us a community that truly and genuinely is only explainable because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.